Jiminy Crickets. Jiminy Cricket is the name. I'm a happy-go-lucky fellow. Always getting in wrong for singing my song. A merry old soul am I. Jiminy Cricket is the name. I'll be hanging around this evening. I'll be tipping my hat and telling you that Jiminy Cricket is the name. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Jiminy Crickets podcast. We're back. We haven't had a new episode since around Halloween time last year. But uh, we are starting a new year, and we have a brand new show, which is uh, a special tribute to a Disney classic, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this very month, Sleeping Beauty. So we have a whole show about the history, the story, and all the behind-the-scenes goings-on regarding that Disney classic. How are you doing, Ruthie? I'm doing fantabulous. How are you, Chris? Oh, I'm just doing uh, wonderful, full of merry weather and... uh, Flora and fauna? Golden sunshine in my hair. (laughs) So before we get started, we have a very special announcement. The Jiminy Crickets podcast proudly endorses Concierge Vacation Planners, a Disney-authorized specialty vacation planning service. Concierge doesn't just book your trip. They walk you through the entire process, helping you plan out every detail, one-on-one, to make the very most out of your vacation while saving you both time and money. And the best part is they charge nothing for their services. You will get the exact same pricing as if you booked your vacation directly through Disney. But in using concierge expertise, you've got the added bonus of having your very own personal Disney guru planner by your side. Both Ruthie and I are also satisfied customers, and we just can't recommend them enough. Visit their website at www.concierge.com. That's www.concierge.com, as in mouse ears. So when you book your next Disney vacation, be it Walt Disney World, Disneyland, the Disney Cruise Line, or many of the other Disney destinations available worldwide, contact Concierge Vacation Planners, and be sure to tell them Disney Chris sent you. Sleeping Beauty, sparkling with colorful spectacle, brimming with gay music and delightful new songs, filled with fascinating new Disney characters. I wonder, I wonder, you'll meet lovely Princess Briar Rose. I wonder why each little bird has a son. You'll meet handsome Prince Philip and Samson, his noble steed. You'll meet the most delightful fairies who ever wafted a magic wand. Flora. Fauna. And Merryweather. 
You'll share the fun with King Stephen and King Hubert. <laughs> and you'll see Maleficent work her wondrous witchcraft. Stand back, you fools! The fine art of animation becomes magnificent entertainment as Walt Disney brings one of the world's favorite stories to the screen. It's filled with magical fun. It's spectacular in its beauty. And there's adventure to excite every emotion. of this theater is proud to recommend this magnificent motion picture to every member of every family everywhere. Sleeping Beauty was Walt Disney's 16th animated feature. It was a film that was nearly a decade in the making. At the time it was released, it was the most expensive animated feature ever made. It was a box office failure upon its initial release, but even though it was a failure, it did very well at the box office. The problem was, it cost so much money to make <laughs> that it was just really difficult to recoup those expenses. A lot of people don't realize some of the Disney movies that are regarded as classics today were not successful. Uh, when they were first released. Some good examples would be movies like Bambi or Fantasia. Even Alice in Wonderland was not a financial or critical success until at least a decade after it originally was released. And the same can be said about this film, surprisingly enough, because most people today regard it as a masterpiece. But when it was first released, it uh, didn't do so well. There's a lot of reasons for that. We'll talk about that. So Sleeping Beauty was something that Walt Disney wanted to do because he had had such success with his two earlier fairy tale related uh, animated features, those being Snow White and Cinderella, respectively, both of which were huge financial and critical successes. So he felt that he needed to stick with his wheelhouse and do a third. But he was very adamant about doing it differently. And he didn't want people to compare this film to Cinderella or Snow White. Therefore, he went in a whole different direction visually, even though the story is you know, the typical, you know, fairy tale type story about a, you know, once upon a time, a prince and a princess and all that. They wanted to go a different direction visually. And this was controversial in the studio with a lot of the animators. 
And the person who, above all else, who should be credited with the look of this film is an artist named Ivan Earl, who pretty much hand-painted about 80% of the backgrounds used in this film himself. Like I said, this film took about eight years from start to finish. So he had plenty of time to paint. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we start off with the origins of this fairy tale? Because this fairy tale goes way back, back to the uh, 15th century. And even further back, uh, the 15th century version uh, is probably the first written version. But before that, it was one of those stories that was handed down verbally from generation to generation. So the story really predates the Renaissance. And um, Ruthie, why don't you share some of the um, versions from the 1600s going forward of this that predated the Disney version? So the original, well, let's say the originally published version was by Charles Perrault. He published the story Sleeping Beauty in 1697 in his book stories from past times um he also wrote the stories cinderella and little red riding hood so he is no stranger to fairy tales and when we say wrote that's real he penned them i mean right this, like i said the stories them. existed yeah. yeah yeah because he published these stories they kind of are attributed to him yeah. in that way he published the story sleeping beauty the french title is actually translate into English as the Sleeping Beauty in the Woods. Yeah. Which is what they actually still use that title in the French language to describe the story. They, they retain that in the woods as part of it. In fact, the castle at Disneyland Paris, which is named after Sleeping Beauty, is actually the Sleeping Beauty in the Woods castle. Because that's oh. what they know it as in French, yeah. Oh, okay. So, he was the original publisher of the story. And then, the Brothers Grimm also published a version of the story as well. And their version was kind of collected from orally transmitted versions. So, that's basically what you were saying. They took the story from somebody who was orally telling the story. And they published that the same story. Their, theirs was titled Little Briar Rose in their book, Children's and Household Tales, and which was a collection of fairy tales published in 1812. And it had the story in it. It had this, it had Snow White, it had multiple classic fairy tales. And these are sort of the ones that we as, you know, in American culture, we sort of turn to the Brothers Grimm as the the old school originators of these stories but again these all existed well before they published their book this is mm -hmm. a prime example because charles perrault had his version 200 years earlier so right. or 100 years earlier so the disney version of the film in the opening credits does credit the story to the charles perrault version but they did take bits and pieces from the Grimm version and the Peralt version and sort of mixed them all together. But they give credit to the Charles Peralt version mm -hmm. in the film. 
Yeah. And then, of course, we have to mention the Sleeping Beauty Ballet, mm-hmm. which was composed by Tchaikovsky. And he composed the score. Then the ballet premiered in January of 1890 in St. Petersburg, Russia. And just to mention, he's also the composer of Swan Lake and the Nutcracker. So, I mean, he's no stranger to ballets. Those are those three are probably the three most famous ballets of all time. Right. Yeah. Right. So he's the composer. And then, of course, Disney also used his score as an inspiration. And then also right. we'll discuss later how they decided to incorporate his score into the film. Right, and his version of the story was sort of borrowed bits and pieces from the Peralt version and the Grimm Brothers version as well. He sort of adapted it for the ballet as well. So Disney took parts of what was in the ballet, you know, Mm -hmm. was originated from the ballet version, were incorporated into the Disney story. So it's really a conglomeration of three different, stories and disney sort of picked the best parts from each and then added a bunch of stuff that's not in any of those stories (laughs) of course right (laughs) right like the whole middle sequence with briar rose Mm -hmm. being brought up in the forest that's not in any of these stories right that was a complete disney invention and briar rose is not the name of the character in the Sleeping Beauty, what Briar Rose refers to in the original story is the fact that she was a beautiful woman that was sleeping in a tower in a castle surrounded by uh, thorns and briars. Mm-hmm. And so they called her the Little Rose of the Briars. Because mm-hmm. she was, you know, so th- it, that wasn't her name in, in the. In fact, the original story, she didn't even, she wasn't even given a name. Right. Um, but Disney used the name Briar Rose as sort of a nod to the Grimm Brothers version. Mm-hmm. And Aurora uh, means the sunrise in Greek mythology. And I don't, that name was not used in any of these versions. Disney just came up with that name to call her Aurora. That's Disney. So it could be derived from the fact that in the Charles Perrault version, at the end of the story, she has two children and she names one night and the other one day. So maybe that's how Disney came up with the name Aurora. I don't know. I don't Mm -hmm. know. (laughs) Yeah. So they added a lot of their own stuff to the Disney version. So like we said, the story, the production of this film started way back in the early 50s. And unlike some of the others that were, you know, like we talked about Peter Pan and other Disney films that they started developing in like the late 30s, right after Snow White. But then they put them on the shelf Mm -hmm. and they sat on the shelf for years and then they went back to them later. So the gestation period was... You know, a lot of it was dormant, like there was nothing being done on them. But in this case, they first started working it in the early 50s, and they kept working on it straight through till the time it came out in 59. There was no time where this was shelved. From beginning to end, they were continually working on it. It's just that they put so much 
work and time and development into this that it took so long. I think this is might be the longest Disney film to develop that never got shelved and was revisited later. I mean, if you take that criteria, you could even you probably would say a movie like Frozen is the longest in development because they started developing that in the 50s, a story right. based on the the um what is it, the Ice Queen? Ice Queen, yeah, I think it's Ice Queen. Right, which was a Hans Christian Andersen story. So that got put on the shelf for decades, and then they went back to it. But as far as straight production time, I think this is the longest ever done by Disney. Not the longest ever done. Mm-hmm, right. We'll, talk about, <laughs> uh, well, actually, in our next episode, might be talking about the longest ever done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Ruthie? Yeah. Yeah. Not to give away any spoilers on what our next topic is going to be, but... I guess you guys are just going to have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, the story development began in, in around 1951. Uh, the success of Cinderella sort of, I feel, based on the date here, and mm-hmm. only based on the date, because I'm just kind of... Sp- using common sense in my mind i have no proof to back this up but it just seems to me that cinderella definitely gave them the the drive the desire to right like mm-hmm. do it again because cinderella was such a phenomenal success it, cinderella very people realize this because the late 40s was a really difficult time for disney because they were starting to get back into gear after the war and it was a difficult so if if Cinderella had tanked that would have been the end of the Disney studio Cinderella was like they were writing everything on the success of that and it was a phenomenal success and that saved Disney from going bankrupt basically so because of the success of that I feel like that's why right away they got to work on another classic fairy tale like Cinderella Right. This was becoming a cash cow for them, basically. Yeah, it like became Disney's bread and butter, basically. Right, yeah. exactly. So, mm-hmm. the thing is that the work that they did initially, a lot of it was thrown out. And so they had a whole story treatment that they did in the early 50s that was completely different from what the final film became. They did a whole story treatment. They storyboarded almost the entire film by, it was done by 1952. And then they basically, Walt wasn't happy with it. it the main problem he had with it, it was too similar to Snow White and Cinderella. And one of his prime directives in the development of this film is he didn't want it to be like Cinderella or Snow White. And that he was constantly driving that fact into his animators and into everybody involved in this film. I don't want it to be another Snow White. I don't want it to be another Cinderella. Which to me seems odd because that's contradicting what I just said a minute ago. Where, you know, he just wanted it to be that type of story but told in a completely different and unique way. And for the most part, he got what he wanted because this is a very different film from either of those. In fact, this is a different film from basically any other Disney animated film. Right. So they reworked the story and changed it up 
quite a bit. Now, the original version had a whole bunch of songs that were composed. The original thinking was they were not going to use the Tchaikovsky score because they wanted it to be, you know, they weren't trying to copy something that had already been done. But Walt was just so enamored with that score that eventually he just said, why don't we just base it on the score? Why, why is that a bad thing? You know? Yeah. But that was after they had all of this music set up and it was very kind of Broadway-ish and he didn't feel like it went along with the story. Right. And he had also hired some high caliber songwriters to write these songs. So what he ended up doing is he sort of redirected them to work on Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland. So that collaboration with with Sammy Fain and you know other outside songwriters that they had brought in kind of was what led to the songs for Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, which we love so much. So yeah. that did end up, you know, having fruit come out of it. But only one song that was written and in this early period remained to the end. And that was the only song that originally they had written based on a Tchaikovsky theme, which was the Sleeping Beauty theme, the famous da 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 They actually did early on write one song using that. Walt Disney loved it so much that he wanted to do more. And right. these high caliber songwriters were like, that we don't wanna <laughs> we wanna That's write not our, our own style. Songs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he ended up using in-house songwriters and he also ended up hiring a gentleman known as George Bruns, who you may have heard of. And he was brought on to adapt Tchaikovsky's score for this film. And around the same time, they had been reworking the story, and it was much more what we know today as the Disney version of Sleeping Beauty by 1953. And at that point, they began the casting. So let's talk about the cast. The main characters in this film are Sleeping Beauty, also known as Aurora, and Briar Rose. Also Maleficent, who is the evil fairy, and the three fairies, Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether, the three good fairies. Then you've got King Stefan, who is Aurora's father, and Prince Philip, who is the Prince Charming of this piece. And you've got King Hubert, who is the father of Prince Philip. And then you've got a lot of side characters. So let's sort of go through who did these voices. The work that these uh, actors did, not only for this film, but sort of a little bit of the history of what they did before and after Sleeping Beauty. So uh, why don't you tell us about the uh, main character, well, I would argue she's not the main character as far as, I mean, she's the, the name of the movie, but yeah. would, <laughs> she actually doesn't have very much dialogue, and she's sort of just a means to an end, but she's still, you know, 
she's still the main character because it's the movie's named after her. So right. <laughs> she's the reason we're here. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so Princess Aurora slash Briar Rose, the voice is provided by Mary Costa. Oh dear. Why do they still treat me like a child? Ooh. I'm Flora and Fauna and Meriwether. They never want me to meet anyone. Know something? I fooled them. I have met someone. Ooh. 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 Oh, a prince. Well, he's tall and handsome and and so romantic. Oh, we walk together and talk together and just before we say goodbye he takes me in his arms and then I wake up Mary was always singing as a child and she was in church choirs and like high school choirs and stuff but following high school she studied music at the Los Angeles Conservatory of Music and between 1948 and 1951, she appeared with Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy on the Bergen radio show. And in 1952, she auditioned for the starring role of Aurora in the then upcoming Disney film Sleeping Beauty. So what happened after she auditioned is Walt actually called her personally within hours of her audition to inform her that the part was hers. And he just really liked her voice a lot. He just really felt like her voice really encapsulated the character. Right. Not only her speaking voice, but also her singing voice as well. Right. She did both, which is yes. sort of unusual during this period in Hollywood for the person who does the singing, especially in animation, mm-hmm. to do both the singing and the vocal performance. I know Adriana Castellotti did the same mm-hmm. in... Snow White, but in Cinderella, the speaking and singing were two different actresses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, just to follow up a little bit of what um, Mary Costa did after she did Sleeping Beauty, in 1958, she began her operatic singing career and went on to perform in 44 operatic roles on stages throughout the world with guest appearances on many shows, such as Bing Crosby's Christmas Show. And actually, Jacqueline Kennedy asked her to sing at the memorial service for her husband, John F. Kennedy, from the Los Angeles Sports Arena in 1963. I thought that was pretty interesting because I didn't know that. She sang for the inaugural concert of the JFK Center for Performing Arts in 1971. In 1972, she starred in the MGM feature The Great Waltz, depicting the life of Johann Strauss. She had additional movie credits that include The Big Caper from 1957 and Marry Me Again from 1953. In November 1999, she received the prestigious Disney Legend Award, and her handprints are now a permanent part of the Disney Legends Plaza at the entrance to the Disney Studio. Costa has dedicated her later years to inspiring children and teenagers, giving motivational talks at school and colleges around the country, and she continues to do promotional appearances for Disney, most recently for the Blu-ray release of Sleeping Beauty and the 50th anniversary of the film. 
So, probably stealer of the show here, the scene stealer, the one we all leave the theater remembering, is Maleficent, who is performed by Eleanor Audley, and this is just an amazing performance. I mean, everything she did for Disney is amazing. And she really only did three things, but they're very memorable, and uh, just she has such a distinctive voice that you can't imagine anybody else portraying uh, Maleficent other than her. Listen well, all of you. The princess shall indeed grow in grace and beauty, beloved by all who know her. But before the sun sets on her 16th birthday, she shall prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die. Oh, no. <laughs> Seize that creature. Stand back, you fools. So she began acting at 20, and she was in a Broadway production called Howdy King in 1926. And she continued work on Broadway up until the early 40s, and then she started doing radio programs. And this is a lot of these actors who worked with Disney in the 50s had got their start on radio. So they were very well versed in how to do vocal performances without being seen you know in a in a you know in a recording booth that this was something that was very familiar to a radio actor it was it came right. natural to them so mm -hmm. some of the things she some of the programs that she appeared on during this this radio era were escape suspense my favorite husband which was a comedy and she played a mother-in-law the story of dr kildare and the radio version, which predated the television version of Father Knows Best. Interestingly enough, before she did the voice of the evil stepmother for Disney, she was actually the stepmother in a Cinderella story on Hallmark Playhouse for radio. And she was also on a weekly Western series called The Six Shooter, which starred Jimmy Stewart. She was in several movies, best known as her voice of Lady Tremaine as Cinderella's evil stepmother from Cinderella in 1950. And of course, Maleficent in 59. Of course, she recorded that back in 53, but it didn't get released until 59. Originally, she had turned down the role because she was battling uh, tuberculosis, but she recovered and she came on to do the, the voice, thank goodness. I can't imagine anybody else doing it. I know. So she came back in the late 60s to do the voice of Madame Leota in The Haunted Mansion. So she is the voice of the crystal ball lady. Rap <laughs> on a table, it's time to respond. Send, Send me, a me a message from somewhere beyond. But she's not the... Um, <laughs> The, the that person who you see, that's Leota Toombs, who did her, mm -hmm. did, they filmed her. Who posed but, for, yeah, for Madame right. Leota. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So she also was on a bunch of television as a guest and whatnot. And this is how I know her because, you know, I watched all these sitcoms growing up, you know, on Nickelodeon, Nick at Night. She was on I Love Lucy, Perry Mason, Dennis the Menace, Hazel, The Real McCoys, The Twilight Zone, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Beverly Hillbillies. I distinctively remember her on The Beverly Hillbillies. Mr. Ed, My Three Sons, etc., etc. And she was also a regular on the sitcom Green Acres, which is an all-time favorite. And she played um, the mother of Oliver Douglas but she acted more like a mother-in-law but she was actually his mother and she was always upset that he had given up being a lawyer in the big city and had moved out to the country and she was always coming around and giving him black about all that so I remember her on that show and she's wonderful so now let's we talked about who did the evil fairy let's talk about the actresses who did the three good fairies ruth all right well the first fairy is flora and her voice is provided by verna felton which any disney fan is going to know her voice because she's been in a lot of disney movies and now dear if you'll just sit here this one last gift dear child for thee the symbol of thy royalty. A crown to wear in grace and beauty, as is thy right and royal duty. She's basically best known for her husky voice and no-nonsense attitude, which she brings to these Disney characters. But at around the age of seven, she performed in a local benefit for flood victims, and the manager of a roadshow company saw her singing and dancing and offered her a job with the company, so she joined this traveling roadshow at the age of seven. So she basically grew up in theater. And she acted on stage in um, Canada in the late 1920s, playing the lead role in the plays Goldfish, Stella Dallas, and the second Miss Tangeray. Between like the 1930s and the 1950s, she worked extensively in radio before she started doing television and, and movies. But notably, she played Mrs. Day, who was always looking out for Dennis Day while trying to boss around Jack Benny on the Jack Benny program. Dennis Day has a Disney connection. You know what that is? No, he, I don't. He was the voice of Johnny Appleseed. Oh, the singing voice or the speaking voice? Both. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, he has a good voice. I like mm-hmm. that voice. <laughs> mm-hmm. So after radio, she began doing television appearances. And she had a recurring role as the mother of Ruth Farley, a young woman played by Gloria Winters in the 1953 to 1955 sitcom, Where's Raymond? But this show was actually renamed the Ray Bolger Show. And we all know Ray Bolger played the Scarecrow in Wizard of Oz. So. Oh, and he has a Disney connection, too. He played Barnaby in Babes of That's right. That's right. So she also played Hilda Crocker on the CBS sitcom December Bride. And she played the same character on the radio version two years prior to the television production. Mm -hmm. Felton continued her Hilda Crocker role on the December Bride spinoff, Pete and Gladys. And then for her performance on December Bride, she was nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series in 1958 and in 1959. And you also might recognize her voice because she was the original voice of Wilma Flintstone's mother, 
Pearl Slag Hopple <laughs> on Hanna-Barbera's Flintstones from 1962 to 1963. Hmm. So I didn't remember that. And I used to watch a lot of Flintstones. <laughs> no, I remember that. I remember yeah. her doing that. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Mm-hmm. During the 40s and the early 50s, she was in demand as a character actress on films. But what everybody's waiting for is where you can hear her in Disney as, and her Disney yeah. stuff. So mm-hmm. she's definitely a popular actress with the Disney Studios. And her original role with Disney was in Dumbo 1941 as the elephant matriarch and Mrs. Jumbo, Dumbo's mother. So you got you got to remember hearing her. Dumbo's in, mother has one line. That's it. Right. <laughs> they say, what's his name? And she goes, Jumbo Jr. <laughs> That's her only line. But the other elephant doesn't elephant stop talking her. through the whole yeah. movie. All she does is blab her mouth. Right. And she's also not a very likable character. That's for sure. Right. She isn't. And just the opposite of her next one, who's a very likable character. Who was that? Right. So she was also in Cinderella. As yeah. well as Eleanor Audley. Mm-hmm. She plays the fairy godmother. And this was a role that Felton actually was reprising. She was in the Cinderella story on the radio program. Screen Directors Playhouse and Hallmark Playhouse. So she must have also done that with Eleanor Audley as well. Mm-hmm. You also will recognize her voice in the 1951 movie Alice in Wonderland as the Queen of Hearts. Which is so crazy because... In Cinderella, she plays, like, everybody's favorite, like, grandma or aunt. I know. Like, such a lovable <laughs> character. And in this movie, just the total opposite. Yep. Like, someone you would never want as your grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, in 1955, she played Aunt Sarah in Lady and the Tramp. And oddly enough, her son voiced Jim Deere in the movie as well. And the dog catcher. Yes, I thought that yeah. was pretty interesting. That so That's a nice she did trivia question. She did there. have a couple of scenes with him then. Yeah. So of course in this movie she's Flora, and she also is the voice of Queen Leah, Aurora's mother. So right. she doesn't have very many lines, and also the name is kind of like. Not it's not said in the movie, but that's right. what she's known. And the other thing, the other thing, until recently, they didn't know who right. did the voice of the queen. They did some digging and figured it out only recently. For decades, they had no record of who did the voice of the of the queen. And also, she's only named in like one publication that Disney did some children's book or something they officially named her leah but she's never named in the movie she's never named anywhere else except this one book so they just kind of decided we'll just call her leah because one book called her leah so (laughs) (laughs) yeah so and two other um voices she did a voice of eloise in the 1960 animated short goliath 2 and in her final role sort of the same role as that one exactly it was yeah. Winifred the elephant in the 1967 animated film the jungle book this was her final role animated or live action right. so she actually played three, three different elephants. Disney elephants right? yeah <laughs> which is kind of funny and she was sort of pudgy so I yeah. don't know how she was offended by that obviously not but no. <laughs> but you do kind of think of that's what an elephant sounds like if they yeah. were going to talk, if a it would be her voice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's funny. <laughs> so the next fairy is Fauna. 
-hmm. and she's voiced by Barbara Jo Allen. Maleficent doesn't know anything about love or kindness or the joy of helping others. You know, sometimes I don't think she's really very happy. Barbara Jo Allen's acting started during school plays when she was, you know, in uh, high school. And then in 1933, she joined the cast of NBC's One Man Family as Beth Holly, followed by roles in Death Valley Days, I Love a Mystery, and other radio series. So all of these were all radio, not TV. Stay tuned for I Love a Mystery. (laughs) (laughs) You know it had that. (laughs) Sponsored by Kellogg's. Yes. So also for radio, she created and then portrayed a character called Vera Vague. Yes, that was this introduced... was her claim to fame, yeah. Exactly. So this character was introduced in 1939 on NBC Matinee, and then she became a regular with Bob Hope beginning in 1941. Again, we're still talking about radio. So between 1938 and 1963, she appeared in at least 60 movie and television series. So she was very busy, but she was appearing as this character, Vera Vague. Right. And And she was credited, like, in the credits. As Vera Vague, not Barbara Jo Allen. I can think of other comedians who have done that more recently, like Pee Wee Herman. A lot of the stuff he did was he was credited as his character. But, it, you know, Paul Rubens is the actual actor who did him. But because he was so known as that character, that's how he was credited when he did special appearances and whatnot. And so that was sort of her thing, too. She was so loved and well-known as that character that that's just how, her, how she was known to the public. Well, she was so popular that she eventually adopted this character's name as her professional name. So she began... Right. Exactly. Being known as Vera Vague. Right. And it was basically the same character she played in Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. Kind right. of a ditzy, lovable, but ditzy, you know, older lady, middle-aged mm-hmm. lady. Yeah. Right. And people in 1959 would have instantly recognized her. like Her she, voice. You know, right. Mm-hmm. Her voice and who she was, right. So, I mean, that would have been a reason to go see this movie because, oh, Vera Vague's in it, you know. Mm -hmm. So for Disney, she did a couple of voices besides Mm -hmm. the Sleeping Beauty. Right. So she also did Goliath 2's mother in Goliath 2. So she worked alongside Verna Felton. So we have two of the out of the three fairy godmothers also performing voices in Goliath 2. So that's interesting. And they both played elephants. (laughs) (laughs) and then barbara joe allen also uh, provided the voice of the scullery maid in the 1963 films the sword and stone yeah the one when all the pots and pans are washing themselves and she runs in and she she's like oh ah!" she gets all freaked out (laughs) yeah all right and our final fairy was meriwether Mm -hmm. and her voice was provided by barbara luddy well, a bonfire won't stop Maleficent. I'd like to turn her into a fat old hop Now, dear, that isn't a very nice thing to say. Besides, we can't. You know our magic doesn't work that way. It can only do good, dear, to bring joy and happiness. Well, that would make me happy. She began her career singing in vaudeville as a child, and her film career began with silent pictures in the 1920s. During this time, she was also a prolific radio performer. 
-hmm. Bloody was a member of the dramatic cast of the Chicago Theater of the Air. Mm -hmm. And one of her better known roles on radio was being a regular performer on the First Nighter program from 1936 until the series ended in 1953. That's a long show. That's a lot of first nights. (laughs) 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 So she's really best known, though, for her voice work in Disney animated films. Oh, yes. so she provided the voice of Lady in Lady and the Tramp. She voiced Meriwether in Sleeping Beauty. She voiced Rover in 101 Dalmatians. She voiced Mother Sexton, which, who was a church mouse, right. and Mother Rabbit in Robin right. Hood. Right. But she's probably best known for the voice of Kanga in the, in the Winnie the Pooh featurettes. So that's Winnie the Pooh in the Honey Tree, Winnie the Pooh in the Blustery Day, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, which, of course, were all compiled into the film The Many right. Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Right. The first three. Her, yes. Her other film credits include Terrified from 1962. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that movie, Chris? <laughs> no, I was too, too frightened to see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> too terrified. <laughs> and she was also in the TV film Lost Flight from 1969. Mm-hmm. She also guest starred in episodes of such television programs as Hazel, Dragnet, Adam-12, and Kolchak, the Night Stalker. So those are our three fairies. I've heard of that one. I've heard of the other three, but not... I've never heard of that one either. (laughs) I've heard of one Adam-12, one (laughs) Adam-12. All right. Well, those are the three good fairies. So let's talk about some of the other characters, shall we? Yes. And when you have a fairy tale... In addition to having a princess, you also need to have a prince. Yes. Right? That's how it works in fairy tales. So, the person who played the role of Prince Philip, who definitely has a much meatier role than the prior two princes. In fact, he has a bigger role than Sleeping Beauty does in this film. Yeah. (laughs) And he has more lines. He's not the main character either, but he's definitely bigger than Sleeping Beauty. I would say, I mean, the main character really is Maleficent. And then the three fairies are sort of next in line. And after them, I would say he's the next biggest character right i'm awfully sorry i didn't mean to frighten you oh it wasn't that it's just that you're a a A stranger Mm -hmm. but don't you remember we've met before we we have of course you said so yourself once upon a dream so bill shirley began as a singer when he was a child in ogden utah And he was a member of local children theater groups. At the age of 11, he traveled to California. And he was introduced to Sid Grauman. Now, Sid Grauman was the person who owned Grauman's Chinese Theater, of course. And he listened to him sing. And so he appeared in films for 20th Century Fox and Paramount Studios. In 1941, he signed uh, with Republic Studios for a seven-year contract. In 1942, before he had completed his contract, he ended up enlisting at a little uh, event taking place over in Europe, uh, World War II, as an army private. (laughs) (laughs) And he served as the quartermaster for the quartermaster corps of fort warren wyoming and he 
directed training films for Signal Corps Training Films Division in Los Angeles and for the radio section of Special Services Branch. So he did radio propaganda and training film propaganda during the war. That was how he served out his tenure in the armed services. After he left the army, he went back to regular performing and he worked on radio and stage in Summerstock, which is sort of off-Broadway, and on television. And he appeared in nightclubs as a singer, and he uh, was at the Copacabana in 1947, and different nightclubs. And Daryl Zanuck heard him sing and put him under contract as a ghost singer, which is when the actor portraying the role isn't singing, they're lip-syncing. He was doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes singing for different uh, actors in the late 40s. In 1952, he got a leading role on screen as Stephen Foster in the movie I Dream of Jeannie, which is, a, I guess, a biography of the Stephen Foster who wrote the song I Dream of Jeannie with the yeah. light brown hair. Not the TV show, I Dream of Jeannie. No, that's why I was saying. Just yeah. don't confuse it with <laughs> Barbara Eden. <Right. laughs> the same year he played Bruce Martingale, a singer at a local tavern, in Abbott and Costello Meet Captain Kid, which I guess takes place in like the old, you know, the pirate days. Um, in 1952, he joined the Hollywood USO troop to entertain soldiers in the Korean War. And after 1956, he did promotional shows and sponsorships for Coca-Cola, Chevrolet, Ford, General Electric. And besides all of his television work, Shirley performed on the radio at various nightclubs across the country. Anyway, Shirley was approached by the Walt Disney Company, probably based on his, his vocal ghosting to do the speaking and singing voice for the character of Prince Philip in Sleeping Beauty. Now, remember, all of these, even though the movie came out in 1959, all of these recordings were done in around 1953. So, kind of put yourself at where he was at in his career in 1953, not so much in 1959. So before they uh, were cast as the voices of Aurora and Philip, Mary Cost and Shirley were asked to audition together to make sure their voices complemented each other. And once cast, he had many rehearsals. Bill would later remember that he said, Whoa, Samson, who was his horse, to a non-existent horse for a whole day before the sound engineers were satisfied with the inflection. Can you imagine? <laughs> I know. The whole day saying that? Ugh. <laughs> so at that point, Samson had not even been sketched as a horse. So he didn't even know what his horse was going to look like. Shortly mm -hmm. before the film was released, Bill and Mary performed together at the Hollywood Bowl on a Disney-themed night in 1958. In an interview, Costa recalled that she and the actresses playing the fairy godmothers, Verna Felton, Barbara Jo Allen, and Barbara Luddy, were endeared to Shirley, his good looks and his shyness, adding that we all had crushes on him and he was so shy and we all had just genuine crushes on that prince. He was really cute. So they all had the hots for him. <laughs> 
So, another famous role of Shirley's, again as an uncredited ghost singer, was the singing voice of Freddie Ernstford Hill, played by Jeremy Bratt, in the Warner Brothers film of My Fair Lady. Now, my question is, if he was so good-looking, and he... Why didn't he play it? Why didn't he just play that role? I know, he could have. That's a perfect role that for him. That doesn't make any sense to me. I of course, know. he sang the famous song on the street where you live. For a long while, Brett claimed that he himself had sung the song and that Mr. Shirley merely sweetened the high tones. It was not until 1994 that Brett admitted that it was Shirley who sang the song. What a kind of a crummy thing to say. I know. I know. Yeah. Well, anyway, that is who played the prince. Now, let's talk about who played both of those crazy kings, starting with uh, Aurora's father, King Stephen. The very same King Stephen who used to own King Stephen's Banquet Hall inside Cinderella's castle, which doesn't make any sense. Why <laughs> Sleeping Beauty's king would have a restaurant in Cinderella's castle. They finally renamed it Cinderella's Royal Banquet Hall. But yeah, for he years, got evicted. Yeah. <laughs> if the castle was bigger in Disneyland and they could put a restaurant, then that would make sense. Because that's Sleeping right. Beauty's castle. But anyway... Who played King Stephen? So King Stephen's voice was provided by Taylor Holmes. Now be reasonable, Hubert. After all, Aurora knows nothing Me. about all this. Well, well, it it uh, may come as quite a shock. Shock? My Philip a shock? What's wrong with my Philip? Nothing, Hubert. I only meant... Why doesn't your daughter like my son? Now, now. I'm not so sure my son likes your daughter. Now, see here. I'm not so sure my grandchildren want you for a grandfather. Why, you, you unreasonable, pompous, blustering old windbag. And Holmes began his stage career in vaudeville and made his first professional appearance at Keith Theatre in Boston in 1899. In 1900, Holmes appeared on George Bernard Shaw's Candida in Chicago, the first production in the United States. And he made his Broadway debut in February of 1900 in the controversial play Sappho, which was briefly closed for indecency. <laughs> and I thought it was funny, so I had to look it up. And the indecency was claims that the play's language and costumes were immoral. <laughs> this is back literally in 1900. So by the 1940s, he was working more on film than on stage. He actually plays Marilyn Monroe's potential father-in-law in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And he played Ebenezer Scrooge in what is largely considered a notoriously bad and cheaply made half-hour television version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol in 1949. When he provided the voice of King Stephen, this was his last credited screen role. So the end to an illustrious career. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like What it. a way to go out. <laughs> so who played the other father? King Hubert. A very well-known Disney voice, oh, Bill yes. Thompson. Mm -hmm. uh, hurry, boy! Hurry! Uh, change into something suitable. Can't meet your future bride looking like that. But I have met her, Father. Yeah, you have? Where? Once upon a dream, 
Philip, stop it, stop that. Philip, put me down. Now, what's all this dream nonsense? He's another one. He's right up there with Verna Felton for Disney Voices. Somebody that you're going to recognize. And I think he actually, his voice is kind of synonymous with like one type of character as well. But um, (laughs) he also began his career in vaudeville and radio. The radio show that he's most well known for, the show was called The Breakfast Club. And he created a character called Mr. Wimple, which was a meek, mushmouth character. And this character was like a reoccurring character on this radio show. And throughout his life. Yeah, basically, because he took this character that he created, and this was from, that show originated in 1934, and he kind of took this character and just translated it and kind of redid it and redid it throughout the rest of his career. Yeah. He joined the cast of a radio show called Fibber McGee and Molly, and he also brought that same character there. And um, this was definitely his most endearing character. Mm-hmm. And from that character... That character turned into the animated character Droopy the dog. And so you can hear like his voice the way that that I'm describing this Mr. Wimple character kind of translated into Droopy's voice. Right. Tex Avery animated character from MGM animation. Same studio that did Tom and Jerry. Mm -hmm. Around 1943, his thriving career was interrupted when he joined the U.S. Navy during World War II. All these people, these great talents, just everything was at a standstill during World War II. Right. Everything stopped. But luckily, he was able to return. He returned back to the Fibber McGee show. And he also became a semi-regular on Edgar Bergen's radio series mm-hmm. as lecturer Professor Thompson. <laughs> Another character type that he would have as a recurring thing. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that in a minute. Yeah. So he also continued to play Droopy. And he also voiced uh, Droopy's reoccurring bulldog nemesis Spike, who was also known as Butch. And then he also provided the voice for other MGM characters before he moved on to Disney. And I know we've talked about him before, but we'll just go through his Disney repertoire again. He's heard in many shorts and features, often in either dialect parts or a variation of his wimple slash droopy voice. So mm-hmm. his first one is the White Rabbit and Dodo in Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. He voiced Mr. Smee and other pirates in Peter Pan. He did King Hubert in Sleeping Beauty. And his best showcase may have been in Lady in the Tramp, where he is heard in no less than five dialect parts, such as Jock the Scottish Terrier, Bull the Cockney Bulldog, Dashi the German Dachshund, Joe the Italian Cook, and the Irish Policeman in the Zoo. <laughs> in shorts, he's heard as Ranger J. Audubon Woodlore in several Donald Duck and Humphrey the Bear entries. He's Governor Keith and Human Tour Guide in Ben and Me. He's Professor Owl in the two music-related shorts Melody and Toot Whistle Plunk and Boom. Right, and that's bringing back his professor character that he started on radio. He reprised the Audubon Woodlore on two television episodes of The Wonderful World of Color. And did he do that for Professor Owl as well? No, he did 
they showed those cartoons and he did some fill-in. I guess you could consider it because he did record some new stuff for it. Yeah. Okay. And he was actually the first actor to voice the comic book character Scrooge McDuck. Right. Which we mentioned in our lost live episode that doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) So those of you that heard it already knew that. Yeah. (laughs) So he provided another prominent role is the Irish station master Flannery in Pigs is Pigs. Mm -hmm. And his final role, he provided the voice of Uncle Waldo from the Aristocats. And he's also well known for being the announcer for several Peter Pan peanut butter commercials. Mm -hmm. So that's Bill Thompson. So filling in some of the smaller roles, doing bird noises and whatnot, Dallas McKinnon, who did the owl and Diablo, the the evil raven, who's a Maleficent's familiar. And he's a famous Disney voice actor. Who did a lot of roles as cantankerous, uh, old, like, uh, 49er gold <laughs> miners and such. And he's uh, heard on the um, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad to this day, you know, hold on to your hats and glassers. That's Dallas McKinnon. He appeared both on screen and as a voice actor in all those Disney comedies and Disney animated films throughout the 50s, 60s, and well into the 70s and even 80s. The narrator, who only really narrates the beginning of the film, and then he's sort of, he's quietly phased out after the first couple scenes, that would be Marvin Miller, who was just a career radio announcer who had that distinctive type of voice that worked perfectly for that type of a role. And then we had some other veterans doing, um, you know, other animals and various goons and different fill-ins, such as Candy Candido, famous for being the voice of the Indian chief and Peter Pan. We've talked about him before. Um, And also the trees and Babes in Toyland. Mm -hmm. Um, Pinto Kalvig, who, of course, was the original voice of Goofy. And Bob Amsbury, who was one of the original cast members in the first two seasons of the Mickey Mouse Club. So that sort of rounds out the the vocal cast. There are several reasons why this film took so long to, to produce. One of the reasons was that there was so much going on in the Disney studio during this period. I mean... In the 40s, it was just all animation all the time with only a few exceptions. The main focus of the studio was animation. In the 50s, they had really diversified. They started doing a lot of live action. Now they had gotten into television and a little little side project called Disneyland was happening. All while Sleeping Beauty was in production. Another reason why this film took so long was because of the fact they decided to film it in widescreen. And not just widescreen cinemascope, which Lady in the Tramp had been produced in. This was in Technorama 70, which was as wide of widescreen that you can get. And it still is, to this day, Mm -hmm. the widest format. So they had to draw twice as much basically as they would on a normal animated feature because there was if you count both sides of the screen added up 
it's like twice as wide as a normal 35 millimeter <laughs> screen, right? This right. is 70. It's twice 35. So they spent a lot of time on the animation, but not only the animation, the backgrounds, which were very detailed, like so detailed that we're going to talk about in a minute how detailed they were and why they were so detailed. This is also the last time they ever did an animated film with hand-inked cells. They didn't have the technology yet of Xerox, so they were still at this point doing all animation by retracing all the animator's original drawings onto clear celluloid and painting them. So that whole step that had been cut out by the time they did their next animated feature, 101 Dalmatians, they were still doing it at this point. And this is actually the last time it's ever been done. And probably, you never say never, but probably is going to be the last time because it is just so costly and so time-consuming. And with the technology they have today, it's not even necessary because, mm -hmm. I mean... In the 60s, you can do the same thing on the computer now. Right, you can do the same thing on the computer. In the 60s, you couldn't, so the drawings right. look completely different, different quality to them. But now, you really can match the quality of Sleeping Beauty without doing all of it manually like you did back then. Um, this was also, interestingly, the last time they did an animated feature that was based on a fairy tale during Walt Disney's lifetime. They hadn't they didn't return to that genre until the late nineties with the Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. That's a thirty year gap. Yeah. So <laughs> So let's talk about the music. The music George Bruns was hired to adapt the music from the Tchaikovsky ballet for animation. And he did the entire background score for Sleeping Beauty with almost all of the music you hear in the background is based on the Tchaikovsky score. But it's all adapted to fit the film. It's not a direct translation. This is something that he was hired to do a second time with Babes in Toyland. Um, to a lesser degree. Again, he adapted all existing music to fit the Disney score. In that case, it was more of a modern-sounding score, but I think Disney remembered the work he had done on Sleeping Beauty, and that's why he had him sort of do the same thing again for Babes in Toyland. But uh, George Bruns was just one of those people that was around for years and years, and he was basically the main person who did all the background scores for Disney films during the golden age of Disney. And he even worked on theme parks. He co-wrote Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, Pirate's Life for Me for Pirates of the Caribbean. He co-wrote Ballad of Davy Crockett and the Academy Award nominated song Love from Robin Hood. So he was sort of the, the person who was the in charge of adapting the score. Now, there were several songwriters involved in this um, production, but many of them sort of were pushed aside. They wrote songs and then they didn't end up using them. Well, Tom Adair wrote a few songs for Disney during the same period because he was sort of hanging around the studio at this time. 
Probably the most famous one he wrote was How Will I Know My Love, which was an Annette hit from the Mickey Mouse Club. It was actually Annette's first song hit. Um, he also wrote the theme song for the Paul Bunyan short. And he put lyrics to the three the song you hear during the Three Fairies segment in the cottage where they're baking and making a dress for Sleeping Beauty. Um, he actually penned lyrics to that, and it was called Sing a Smiling Song, but that ended up getting cut from the film. But they still gave him a screen credit, even though they ended up cutting out his song. As was the case with many of these songs that had lyrics written for them, and were used in Disney films without the lyrics, the version with the lyrics did appear on records. And the 1959 Sleeping Beauty Storyteller Long Playing Record did include Sing a Smiling Song with the lyrics. When you have a busy, busy day, here is how to turn your work to play. Here's a little recipe that can't go wrong, just sing a smiling song. When you have a mile of floors to sweep, and a pile of ironing ten feet deep, here's a way to make the hours seem half as long, just sing a smiling song. Turn the corners of your mouth up instead of down. Come on, friend, and just pretend to play that you're a clown. When you have a million jobs to do, and you think you never will get through, pick a happy melody and hum along and sing a smiling song. When you have a million jobs to do, and you think you never will get through, Pick a happy melody and hum along and sing a smiling song. Another person who was involved in the songs was Winston Hibbler, and he was sort of a Disney regular too. He did a lot of the voiceovers for the live-action True Life Adventures. You know that distinctive voice you hear during all those classic True Life Adventures? That's Winston Hibbler. But his main gig at Disney was a story writer. He did a lot of the story writing on Sleeping Beauty, and in turn, he sort of helped with some of the lyrics in this. Of course, we already mentioned Sammy Fain, who co-wrote Once Upon a Dream, and Jack Lawrence, who was another person who was kind of from Tin Pan Alley, you know, a career songwriter outside of Disney. He co-wrote Once Upon a Dream, with Sammy Fain. And that's really the only song from the early days of production that always remained in this film. The other songs sort of were adapted as they changed the story and made it more into what was in the original ballet score. They added lyrics just like they had done with Once Upon a Dream to themes that were in the original ballet. Another interesting thing is that Jack Lawrence wrote the famous Disney song, another song cut from a film, the lyrics cut from the film, Never Smile at a Crocodile from Peter Pan. Mm. The music was sort of the inspiration, really, for Ivan Earl. When he heard the music, that was what inspired him 
to come up with his look for Sleeping Beauty. Now, Ivan Earl had started working at Disney in the early 50s. He had tried to get in at Disney much earlier than that, but they he couldn't get hired until around 1951, and he was an assistant background painter, and he sort of stood out because of his very modern sort of avant-garde look that he had that was very different from what the other more traditional artists at Disney at that time were doing. He was more tuned into what was going on in modern art and he had much more angular geographical bold shapes than did the other artists. He was really inspired by early Renaissance painting, uh, Middle Age painting, Far East Persian art and these really show in the film Sleeping Beauty because you see a lot of that gothic stuff from the medieval era in this film and it's it really works because that's when this film takes place and Walt really wanted this film to look like a moving illustration turning away from his past efforts to make things look realistic and he wanted to do something much more graphic, much more artistic. He wanted a moving illustration. He kind of went out of his norm for, for how he regulated things. And he really gave Ivan Earl carte blanche over this film. And Ivan Earl is really the person who has more to do with the look of Sleeping Beauty than anybody else involved. And he made all of the other animators and artists who worked on this film follow his aesthetic and this was controversial because this is the first time anything like this had been done in the studio a lot of hurt feelings a lot of um, problems the animators had with trying to translate their characters into his style because if they went all the way with what he was trying to do they wouldn't have been able to animate them so there was a lot of push and shove you know when it came to all of this uh, and it, it a lot of problems happened and several artists actually left the studio after this movie ended uh, Ivan Earl left because after Sleeping Beauty because he just kind of felt like he wasn't you know the most loved person around there by the time this all went down so he moved on to greener pastures and this was sort of the last thing he ever did for Disney but throughout the 50s you can see a lot of his work in other things, such as Paul Bunyan. You really see his influence in that short, which came out about two years before Sleeping Beauty. Another one is the Toot Whistle, Plunk Boom, and Melody shorts. Really, a lot of his backgrounds come through in that. So, one thing he wanted to emphasize in Sleeping Beauty was he didn't want anything out of focus. He wanted everything on the screen to be in full focus at all times, which meant everything had to have complete, finite detail. And the amount of detail in these background paintings is mind-boggling. Every mm -hmm. little crack in a piece of stone, every little leaf on a tree, Everything was thought out meticulously. And also the, the very bold, graphic, angular shapes of, of the trees and the, when they're out in the forest, everything has sharp edges. The characters followed that with a lot of sharp graphic edges. They're not the normal well-rounded 
traditional Disney characters because he forced the animators to go with a style that complemented his backgrounds. A lot of the animators were upset because they felt like they were being upstaged by his backgrounds. And in many cases, they were. But there is no point in the film where the backgrounds are so elaborate that you lose focus on the characters. I feel like they did a really good job of marrying the two. And I never at any point am like so overwhelmed that I can't focus on what I'm supposed to focus on. Even though everything is in complete focus and everything on, on the full 70 millimeter screen. And there's only a, I watched the movie three times to prep for this. And there's only a couple times I noticed something out of focus. There's one time where they do a close up of Samson where the background behind him is blurry and there's really only that's really the only one that I can think of every other time everything is in focus and that's the way you see in real life the whole like blurry out of focus is a movie thing it was invented for the movies when you look at things in real life you see everything in front of you clearly you don't have things in focus out of focus that's not how your eyes work so this was much more like what your eyes would really see. Unless you have really bad vision. So <laughs> <laughs> this was sort of his tour de force, Ivan Earl. He's sort of the whole beginning, middle, and end of Sleeping Beauty. But there are other artists who should be credited for their contributions. And let me go through some of those. The supervising director of the entire film was Clyde Geronimi who had also done work on Alice in Wonderland, Cinderella, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, and later 101 Dalmatians. He sort of supervised everything, but certain sequences were offshooted and directed by individual animators, uh, three most notable being Eric Larson, who was one of the nine old men, and Wolfgang Reitherman, and Les Clark. And Wolfgang Reitherman, he had a major part to play in this film because he directed the famous climactic scene with the Maleficent dragon fight at the end of the film. The story was adapted by a gentleman named Erdman Penner, and he did a lot of story work on Disney films, uh, from Pinocchio to Fantasia, Make My Music, Johnny Appleseed, Cinderella. He did three episodes of the Disneyland television series. And this was actually, he's one of the people who left Disney after this project. And then additional story writers, of, I mentioned Winston Hibbler, Ted Sears, who was really involved in Disney at the time, and Bill Pete. Bill Pete sort of left Disney on bad terms during the development of the Jungle Book. He was sort of the brains behind 101 Dalmatians, but he also did a lot of the, the story work on, on this film. Uh, Ralph Wright, um, also a, Disney, a legendary Disney story man, worked on this film. And Milt Banta, who mainly did work for the comic books, came in and added a few uh, gags and joke ideas the production design even though you know it really was about Ivan Earl 
uh, sort of the people who oversaw everything were Don DeGrotti, who worked on things like De Fuhrer's Face and Lady and the Tramp. Um, he also was nominated for an Academy Award for his visuals on Mary Poppins. And of course, Ken Anderson was also heavily involved in the production design of this film. Ken Anderson is a Disney legend, and he mm -hmm. wrote stuff for um, the package films, Cinderella, Winnie the Pooh, Ben Upson, you name it. Mm -hmm. And he was the art director for Snow White, Pinocchio, The Reluctant Dragon, and 101 Dalmatians. He did animation going all the way back to the Silly Symphonies, and he actually created the character of, of the dragon Pete from Pete's Dragon. That was his design. And he was a, a production designer for Sleeping Beauty. So the actually the key animators were Milt Call. Milt Call was famous. We mentioned him a lot during our 101 Dalmatians episode. He was famous for his work on kind of the boring characters. <laughs> Quote unquote. Yeah, because they were so hard to animate and he was so good at it. And he knew he was good at it. But he was always stuck with the, you know, the characters that weren't quite as fun. I mean, once in a while he'd get a he'd get a good meaty part, but for this film, he did Prince Philip, King Hubert, King Stephen. He did the um, the lackey, the guy that plays the lute and gets drunk, the jester type character. He did some of the horse Samson. So, not the most colorful characters. I think he probably had more fun with uh, the uh, the jester character and the, the horse. Mm -hmm. But then he had to do a lot of the more tedious work on the prince and all that. But Right. And Walt really wanted to make sure that these people looked realistic, which is why he chose Mill to, to yeah. do the characters that right. he animated. Nobody could animate a realistic human like him. Nobody. Yeah. To this day, nobody can without rotoscoping. Mm -hmm. Mark Davis, now, he, come on. <laughs> he designed and created and had everything to do with Maleficent, which is probably one of the greatest, if not, Ruth would argue, the greatest Disney villain mm -hmm. of all time. He also did most of the work on Aurora. In fact, he was so busy on this film that they didn't have him do anything for Lady and the Tramp because he didn't have time. He had to devote all of his energies to this. He did a few scenes of Prince Philip and... King Stefan and he animated the Queen also. So he was heavily involved in this film. Frank and Ollie, you know, Frit and Frack, they <laughs> they kind of teamed up together and did the three good fairies. They complained a lot about this film because the widescreen format never let you really do a close-up on one character. You always had to show all three fairies at the same time, so it kind of became painful for them after time. They also had a lot of battles with Walt and with uh, Ivan Earl over the design of the fairies. Originally, Walt wanted them to be like Huey, Dewey, and Louie, wanted them to be triplets. So they, he convinced them otherwise to go with a more unique personalities for each, which I think was probably the right way to go. Yeah. John Lounsbury also did stuff with King Hubert and King Stefan and the goons and Prince Philip and the animals. He sort of did the filling in of what um, uh, Milk Call 
didn't have time to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. Last but not least, we should mention the character stylist for this film. It was a gentleman named Tom Oreb. Oreb was essential in the design of the characters matching Ivan Earl's look. And he was well hated by the animators because of this. <laughs> he wanted it to fit with the contemporary UPA style, which we've mentioned before when we did our 101 Dalmatians. That was another studio that was doing much more graphic animation, much more modern looking, um, more trendy. And Disney was always kind of following their footsteps, trying to catch up with what they were, their innovations that they were coming up with especially during the 1950s. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of a rundown of the cast and all the behind-the-scenes people involved with Sleeping Beauty. So let's talk about some of the more interesting things about this film, mainly some of the songs and story that goes on during Sleeping Beauty. Let's quickly go through the story and sort of mention some of the great songs used in this film. So the film opens up with a wonderful song, called Hail to the Princess Aurora, which is taken directly from a theme by Tchaikovsky. And this is when uh, the king and queen had longed for a child, and finally their wish was granted. And they named her Aurora, because she brought sunshine to their lives. And so all of the kingdom was invited to a celebration in the palace. So they all traveled to the royal castle, and sing out this wonderful song in honor of the new Princess Aurora. Joyfully now to our princess we come, bringing gifts and all good wishes to we pledge our loyalty anew. Hail to the Princess Aurora, all of her subjects adore her. Hail to the King, hail to the Queen, hail to the Princess Aurora. at the castle three good fairies arrive mistress flora mistress fauna and mistress merryweather and there's this like guy announcing everybody it's kind of funny and they show up to uh give gifts to the new newly born princess who in fact has already been betrothed to prince philip so that the kingdoms of King Hubert and uh, King Stefan will be united when they marry. So we see uh, probably he's about eight years old, Prince Philip, looking at his future bride in a cradle and sort of making <laughs> a funny face. Like, yeah, What's he doesn't all look about? happy about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Flora goes first and she offers her the gift of beauty. And during this, we hear two choruses of a lovely song called the Sleeping Beauty Song, and they sing about the gifts that are being bestowed 
on the princess. Mistress Flora offers the gift of beauty, and then Mistress Fauna goes next and offers the gift of song. And Meriwether goes up to offer her gift. Now one thing that's kind of funny is in the original version, they were going to kind of go with this whole theme of the what Flora is in charge of, what Fauna is in charge of, and what Meriwether is in charge of. And really the only place where you get this is in their gifts, otherwise it kind of turned away from this whole concept. But originally, Flora was going to be in charge of plants and trees and flora, you know, like mm -hmm. flowers and things. So that's why she gave the gift of beauty. Fauna was in charge of all the living creatures, like the animals and things. That's why she gave the gift of song, because birds, the nightingale singing and all that. And Meriwether was in charge of the, of the, um, the weather. So that was, they were going to have those powers, but then they kind of turned away from it. Just before Meriwether offers her gift, and interesting, originally Meriwether was going to be in charge of dreams, and she had a different name. So that's why she was able to turn the spell to sleep instead of death, because she was in charge of dreams and sleeping and all that stuff so that was her power but they never really emphasized that when the final film came out anyway just as meriwether is about to offer her gift she's interrupted and there's a crash of thunder and maleficent appears and she says that she's kind of ticked off that she was not invited to this party and she's just about to turn away, and the queen has to open her big mouth and say, You're not offended, Your Excellency? And that turns around and says, Why no, Your Grace? And to show I bear no ill will, I too shall bestow a gift on the child. And then she kind of gets serious and she says, Listen well, all of you. The princess shall indeed grow in grace and beauty, but... Before the sun sets on her 16th birthday, she shall prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die. <laughs> and that's all, that's all from memory, folks. I didn't write that down. I've seen, I know this movie. So I've been watching it since I was about five years old. But after Maleficent leaves, they remember that Meriwether has not yet given her gift. And although she's not able to reverse the curse, 
she's able to alter the curse so that Aurora will not die, but she will fall to sleep, and the spell will be broken by love's first kiss. They all freak out about this, and the king orders that every spinning wheel in the kingdom be burned. And the three fairies know this is ridiculous, because there's no way you're going to stop her by doing that. So they devise a plan to disguise themselves as peasant women, not use their magic for 16 years, and take Aurora away to hide her in a cottage in the wood. And hopefully... Uh, Maleficent won't find her before her 16th birthday when the curse ends. So, they end up taking her into the woods, and then 16 years goes by, and we see the 16-year-old Aurora in all of her beauty, and they are planning a special party for her because it, this is the eve of her 16th birthday, and they're going to tell her about who she really is and take her to the castle that evening so they send her away to pick wild berries while she's out picking berries the fairies start making a dress and a big cake for aurora but they decide to do it without using their magic because they got through it this long they want to make sure but my question is why in 16 years did they not learn they had plenty of time they didn't have TV Learning back how then. how to bake or so. I mean, what were they doing? They didn't have television back then. <laughs> right. They had plenty of time to learn how to sew and bake and do all that stuff. They had nothing else to do. So anyway, while they're kind of making a mess, we cut away to the forest and we see Briar Rose. Because they renamed her Briar Rose as part of the disguise. And she's told not to speak to strangers so her only friends are the animals so she starts singing a song to the animals specifically a bluebird and she sings a plaintive song about you know she wonders it's kind of like the i want song of this film mm -hmm. where she's it's called i wonder based on a theme from the tchaikovsky ballet and it's also known as the bluebird song because at the beginning of the song, she sort of sings along with a beautiful bluebird.
Meanwhile, a young gentleman who just so happens to be Prince Philip is traveling through the forest and he hears her voice and he ends up bribing his horse with carrots to bring him to the princess. And in doing so, he gets overly excited, jumps over a lake and the prince falls off into the lake. Of which he turns to him and says, no carrots. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he hangs up his cloak and boots to dry. Meanwhile, Aurora's talking to her animal friends a little bit out, you know, a little further down the way out of the view of the prince. And she starts talking about how, you know, she really has met someone once upon a dream. And so she starts singing the famous Disney love song, Once Upon a Dream, about her dream prince that she's met in her dreams. And this so inspires the forest animals that they decide to go steal the prince's clothes that have been hung up and dress themselves up as a prince. In the record album, they call him the Mock Prince, the owl wearing the cape, with two birds helping him keep up and then the bunnies in the boots and they kind of dance around with it's an iconic scene with them dancing around with aurora but the prince ends up following them and he sees what's going on and he cuts in before she knows it she turns around and the prince is is holding her and he says don't be alarmed we've met before you said so yourself once upon a dream and then he starts to sing a verse with her Familiar a gleam 
then they sort of swoon over each other and then Aurora kind of snaps out of it and starts to run away like oh I'm not supposed to speak to strangers and he says can I see you again and she says tonight at the cottage in the glen so he decides he's gonna go meet her at the cottage that night she doesn't know anything about what's going on that she's gonna be brought to the castle and all that stuff meanwhile cut back to the fairies they're really making a mess of things and Meriwether has enough and she goes to get their magic wands and they end up doing everything over again with magic. And during this, uh, Flora is making the dress for Sleeping Beauty to wear and Flora's favorite color is red or pink and Meriwether's color is blue. And they start having a battle over what color the dress is going to be and all of the magic sparks from this battle end up going up the fireplace. Meanwhile, Diablo, who is Maleficent's raven, is out looking for the princess or any information he can gather for Maleficent. And he sees this and he knows, oh my goodness, this must be the fairies in here with all this magic dust flying in the air. And he flies down and peeks in the window just as Aurora is coming home and the, the fairies all explain to her what's going on with her, you know, she's betrothed to the prince and they're going to bring her to the castle. And so Diablo realizes that this is Aurora and he flies back to tell Maleficent where she is. So the gig is up. Meanwhile, Aurora goes crazy, Briar Rose, I should say, because she can't see the gentleman that she just fell in love with. She doesn't know that this is the same person she's supposed to marry. So she gets really upset, but she does what she's told, and the three fairies end up bringing her to the castle. Meanwhile, King Hubert and King Stefan are sort of celebrating with some libation, and they sing a song called Scumps. Scumps! Scumps, a toast to this night. The outlook is rosy. The future is bright. Our children will marry. Our kingdoms unite. Scumps, scumps, scumps. Scumps, scumps, a toast to the home. One grander by far than a palace in Rome. Uh, let me fill up your glass. <laughs> that last was all foam. Scumps, scumps. So they sort of sing a song, and meanwhile, their little court jester keeps sneaking off his own little nips of the wine, and he ends up getting really drunk and falls under the table, and his head falls into his instrument. Just before they're about to chastise him for doing this, they announce that Prince Philip has arrived at the castle. Uh, his father, Hubert, goes down to meet him, and Prince Philip tells him that he's not going to marry the princess because he fell in love with the peasant girl. And so Hubert is really distraught, doesn't know what to do. Meanwhile, Aurora is up in the tower, and the fairies think that all is well with the world, but Aurora is very upset still that over what happened with her once upon a dream gentleman. And so they decide to step away and leave her alone so she can console herself. Meanwhile, Maleficent appears in the fireplace and a glowing light 
hypnotizes Aurora, and the back wall of the fireplace disappears to reveal a winding staircase. And Aurora follows this ball of light up to the uppermost tower, where Maleficent stands next to a spinning wheel. And Aurora is commanded to prick her finger, and she does so, and she falls into a deep sleep. Um, that can only be broken by love's first kiss. So, she leaves, the fairies are distraught, everyone in the kingdom is there for the celebration, and they decide to put everyone in the castle to sleep until the princess is reawoken. So they cast a spell on the whole castle. Meanwhile, they play a reprise of the Sleeping Beauty song that we heard earlier in the film. I really like the second time better. It's mm -hmm. really beautiful. think this is an original song. I don't think it's based on a Tchaikovsky. This is the only song in the film that's completely original. So anyway, just as King Hubert is about to fall asleep, Flora overhears him trying to tell King Stefan what's happening with the prince and how he's not going to marry Aurora. And he mentions the whole once upon a dream thing and then it snaps in her head, it's the same guy. So she tells Fauna and Meriwether, and they decide to go back to the cottage to go get Prince Philip to bring him back to kiss Aurora and break the spell, right? Meanwhile, because Diablo was there and overheard their conversation, Maleficent already knows that, that the peasant boy is going to show up who is her true love. So she's, she's already waiting at the cottage to capture him. When she captures him, she realizes, wait a minute, I set my trap for a peasant, and lo, I caught a prince. So now she knows what's going on. 
So she carries him away to her dungeon on Forbidden Mountain. The three fairies show up back to the cottage too late, but they see Philip's hat on the ground and they know what happened. So they go to Maleficent's castle to rescue the prince, bring him back to the castle and have him kiss Sleeping Beauty and wake her up. So they sneak into the fortress and they see Maleficent go down to taunt Prince Philip. This is how they find out where he is because they secretly follow her down to his dungeon. So she tells him what's going on and she taunts him and says, in a hundred years you can leave and go kiss your princess. Oh, come now, Prince Philip. Why some melancholy? A wondrous future lies before you. You, the destined hero of a charming fairy tale come true. Behold, King Stephen's castle, and in yonder topmost tower, dreaming of her true love, the Princess Aurora. But see the gracious whim of fate. Why, tis the self-same peasant maid who won the heart of our noble prince but yesterday. She is indeed most wondrous fair. Gold of sunshine in her hair. Lips that shame the red, red rose. In ageless sleep, she finds repose. The years roll by, but a hundred years to a steadfast heart are but a day. And now, the gates of the dungeon part, and our prince is free to go his way. Off he rides on his noble steed, a valiant figure, straight and tall to wake his love with love's first kiss and prove that true love conquers all. <laughs> of course, we all know he'll be dead in a hundred years, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so when Maleficent leaves, they sneak into his dungeon and they use their magic to free him they give him the sword of truth and the shield of virtue and they escape but diablo sees them and starts to crow and warn the the goons and the goons start to chase after him as he rides away on his horse samson but everything they try to throw at him the fairies end up thwarting their attempts by using their magic for example they throw boulders down at him but they turn them into bubbles and they throw, you know, hot liquid down on him, but they make a arch with a rainbow and then they throw bows and arrows at him and they turn them into flowers. So finally, Maleficent sees what's going on because what happens is Meriwether has enough of Diablo crowing and messing up everything and she chases him and turns him into stone. And Maleficent comes out of her bedroom in the big tower, sees that they have turned her, you know, her pet into stone. She gets freaked out. Then she sees him escaping and she starts throwing things, magic 
lightning at him and everything. And then she casts a spell around the whole castle. And the whole castle has thorns and, and briars grow like deadly trap around the whole castle. And Philip fights his way through all of this. And just as he's about to reach the castle, she freaks out. She flies over to him and she changes herself into a fire-breathing dragon. And the battle ensues. And when all looks hopeless, the three fairies cast a spell on the sword and have him stab Maleficent, a.k.a. the dragon, right in the heart, and she falls to her death. After that happens, all the briars and everything disappears, and Prince Philip goes up to the tower and kisses Aurora. They come down, and the whole royal court reawakens, and they live happily ever after as the battle ensues over whether the dress should be pink or blue until the very <laughs> end of the film. As they dance off into the sunset. Right. And that's the story and the songs from Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty was released on January 29th, 1959. It was, as we said, Walt Disney's 16th animated film. And it was released in Technorama 70 for exclusive engagements, but only in theaters that were able to show the film in that format. Uh, most of the prints were done for regular theaters in 35 millimeter, which seems like such a disappointment because they put so much work into doing it as a widescreen film, and then to have to release it in 35 millimeters so that more theaters could carry it. And they had to do the whole pan and scan thing also because of the fact that a lot of the stuff happening was happening on the sides of the screen. So there's a whole pan and scan. And whenever they released it on, on video a few years later and whatnot, it was all that pan and scan where they basically move across the canvas so that you can see what's going on. And after mm -hmm. a while, a lot of stuff gets cut off and it's not the, the greatest way to see this film. Mm -hmm. The production cost $6 million at the time it was made, and it only profited after you take into the, the advertising. That doesn't include the advertising, the, the promotion, and after, you know, it, it did profit, I think, about $7 million, but it only grossed about $5 million. So they actually lost about a million dollars on this film. However, because of the film being re-released over and over, which they don't generally do with other films, but Disney films get re-released every few years, at least they used to before they had home video, now it's actually the second most successful film of that year. It wasn't in 1959, but now it is because of all the re-releases and everything. The most successful film of that year is Ben-Hur, followed closely by Sleeping Beauty. And then, of course, you've got all the, the dolls and the books and the, you know all that. The merchandise that has come out of this film has definitely garnered Disney a lot of money over the years. Mm -hmm. And then all the video and DVD and, and soundtracks. And this movie has more 
more than recouped its original loss. Oh, yeah. Tenfold. So even though it wasn't initially a success, like all of these Disney classics that didn't do well originally, now they've more than recouped their initial loss. I mean, Fantasia is another good example of that. It tanked mm -hmm. when it first came out, but now it's made Disney so much money, it's ridiculous. Let's talk about some of the things that this movie led to. Of course, you can't mention Sleeping Beauty without mentioning Sleeping Beauty's castle. What's interesting is the castle premiered in 1955, but this movie didn't open until 59. You know what they were originally going to call the castle? Yeah, it was going to be Snow White's castle. Snow White's castle. But Walt Disney decided that he would rename it because he wanted to help promote this film. And in 1955, they didn't know it was going to take them another four years to finish it. <laughs> they thought <laughs> they had no idea. So they actually, in 57, opened a walkthrough attraction, the Sleeping Beauty Castle walkthrough. It closed for a few years in the early 2000s, but it's still there now. They reopened it. They actually restored it to be much more like the original version because in the 70s, they had redone it with um small like moving doll figures instead of two-dimensional sets from the original they took all those dolls out and they replaced it with something much more similar to the original which was all designed after ivan earl um he had designed all the stuff in the walkthrough exhibit based on his paintings from the film now the castle in hong kong disneyland is actually a duplicate of the one in california but they're actually going to be remodeling that castle. So the only original Sleeping Beauty castle will once again be the one in California once they finish redoing the one in Hong Kong. The one in Paris is also called Sleeping Beauty Castle in French. And it's much more modeled after the, the castle in the film. The castle in the film and the one in Disneyland really don't look anything alike at all. Right, because it wasn't modeled after that castle. No, not at all. The characters from Sleeping Beauty make appearances in the parks all the time. Princess Aurora and Prince Philip and Flora Fauna, sometimes Flora Fauna and Meriwether. Maleficent shows up during special type things especially phantasmic she will she's a big part of phantasmic in fact the dragon in phantasmic is based after her dragon character in in the film she's also a dragon in the current festival of fantasy parade um the one that caught liberty square on fire at one point i guess <laughs> well the float caught on fire in right. liberty square but right. Liberty square didn't actually catch on fire right and I couldn't find anything where it actually has returned yet, but I know it's set to return I think soon. it has returned. Oh, okay. But I don't think it's breathing fire in it for now. Mm. They might bring that back. I could be wrong. If anybody knows differently, let us know. So, of course, in 2014, they released a live-action version of the flip side of the story. Sort of the, the Wicked version, you know, the, mm -hmm. the Broadway play Wicked which tells the story from the other side. And this kind of tells the story from Maleficent's point of view and it, with Angelina Jolie as the title character. And they're doing a sequel, which began production last May. Uh, do you know when that's supposed to come out? Sometime next year? I don't. Year? 
probably sometime next year, I guess. So, before we say goodbye, let's mention some of our favorites. Ruthie, we know your favorite character is Maleficent, because we've talked about her before. So, who is your second favorite character from Sleeping Beauty? My second favorite character af after Maleficent is Flora, the good fairy. And I actually like all three fairies, but I kind of identify more with Flora because she's kind of like the take charge one of the group. And actually, I feel like the fairies are basically like the unsung heroes of the movie, and she's the leader of them. So I kind of identify with that. I usually find myself in positions of being the leader and things like that. So I really liked her. And she's funny too. You know, she kind of, you know, kind of fights back with um, Meriwether and I love the fairies. I'm so glad that they're in this film because this film would be really lacking without them. But I really like Flora. Yeah, I think that um, there's a episode of The Wonderful World of Disney with the magic mirror where mm -hmm. he's called the unsung villains. And he sort of pokes fun at, at Prince Philip saying, he had to use the help of three little old ladies to defeat <laughs> Maleficent. <laughs> so, I always think of that. Now, my favorite secondary character is Meriwether, because I relate to her. I'm pretty much, that's my personality. I have the same personality as Meriwether <laughs> in real life. <laughs> you know, I'm... I'm a good person, I'm, you know, but sometimes I get a little frustrated with people. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like she's like, doesn't like nonsense and I'm kind of the same way to an extent. So I relate to her and I think she's the funniest of the three. What's your favorite scene from Sleeping Beauty? Well, since I couldn't pick my favorite character from the movie Maleficent, my scene has to be in relation to her, which is her entrance into the movie when she comes into the castle in the middle of this celebration for Aurora and interrupts Meriwether's, um, you know, gift that she's about to give to Aurora and Maleficent comes in and makes this huge grand entrance with her um, green light and green fire and cape. And I mean, it's just yeah. so grand and, yeah. and wonderful and, and scary and amazing. I love that scene. This is her grand entrance, so this mm -hmm. is where we first are introduced to this evil character in the film. And, I mean, this is just, who wouldn't Seize want to Seize her! Stand back, you <laughs> fools! <laughs> so, I mean, this is just this is just the best scene for me, and, and this scene epitomizes the movie for me. Well, I have two favorite scenes, and I really can't... They're so vastly different, I really have to say both. My first one would be the scene with the fairies getting the stuff ready for the birthday party where they're not using their magic and Fawn is trying to bake a cake and she has no idea how to follow the instructions and she says two eggs fold in gently and she just sticks two eggs in without cracking them and you know add one tisp tisp what's a tisp <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Flora is making the dress, and Meriwether says, What's that hole for? That's for the feet to go through, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, How do you think it looks? She says, It looks awful. That's because it's on you, dear. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then jump ahead to the next scene after the the forest scene where they finally give up and they end up using their magic and then the whole battle with the pink and blue. So that's one of my favorite parts. And then the other one has to be the big climactic escape and dragon fight at the end. And a lot of times Disney is criticized for this scene because of how graphic it is and some of the language isn't very Disney. They use the H-E double hockey sticks word. And, you know, it's a little creepy and not really. And Disney, Walt Disney never said he was he was making films for children. He never claimed to be making his films for children. They just so happened to appeal to children. Right. And, you know, so, I mean, this is the first cartoon I feel I could be wrong. But I think this is the first Disney cartoon that ever showed blood. When they stab the dragon, the blood comes out from the sword. Pretty graphic stuff. The whole scene is just very graphic, but it's not that that makes it appeal to me. It's just the animation and, and is just some of the best animation that's ever been put on the screen. Mm -hmm. It's an iconic scene. The whole dragon, it, it's really the definitive dragon prince battle of all time like this is the classic prince slaying a dragon scene that we all think of in our imaginations that's been written about for hundreds of years this is the visual representation of it and probably it will never be topped never be done better this is it this is this is what it's all about so how can I not mention that scene as a favorite? So, Ruthie, do you have any final words about Sleeping Beauty? I do. Um, so, re-watching this, you know, in preparation for doing this episode, I just felt like I, I was watching a different movie that I hadn't seen before. And the reason why is because I was watching it on a Blu-ray where I could see the entire screen, the entire picture, and it didn't have what you were calling, you know, the panning back and forth. Right. Um, you could see the full images. You can see the full background. You can see every little detail in these drawings. There is nothing out of focus. You can see the tremendous artistic ability of the ink and paint women, where not only were they coloring in the, the characters, but they were outlining them in a different color. And I could see every little amazing detail and everything that they put into this movie. And I was just in awe of it. And I don't, I just, I just don't feel like I really ever watched the movie in that perspective before. So to me, out of any other Disney movie, this to me is the movie that really proves that animation is also art. And literally with this movie, you can pause it at any frame, and that could be a painting that you would hang on your wall. It is so artistically amazing, and no other animation movie or anything like that will ever top this movie. It's just so much in its own world, and it's at a completely different level. You know, this was done in 1959. I mean, this is amazing. Also, hand, everything hand done. I just... I, I mean, everybody who worked on this movie was a genius. 
because of the what they put into this movie from themselves directly. You can see it. It's such visually stunning, amazing work. And I mean, I just, I could probably go on forever discussing it because it's just so amazing. But I just, if you guys haven't seen the Blu-ray disc, you need to buy it and watch it because you will see this movie in a different light. When I saw this movie for the first time, it was not even pan and scan because I saw it before it had ever been officially released on video. I had never seen it in the theater. What I had was sort of a bootleg copy that was given to my stepmother by someone who had actually worked on the film. His name was Bill Matthews. He was involved in a lot of the um, special effects animation. He's not credited in the movie, but he definitely worked on this. And later he worked uh, with my stepmother, who was involved in film production for ITT Gilfillan, where my father also worked. And so they were good friends, and he gave her a copy of Sleeping Beauty because it was one of her favorites. And the problem was, though, that it was just the center of the screen through the whole movie. So anything on the sides was cut off, and it didn't pan and scan. It just stayed stationary in the exact center. So this was the only version of Sleeping Beauty I had for years. And then I don't think I ever watched it later. I think I had watched it to death in that version. And 25 or more years had gone by since I last had gone back and rewatched it. So this last time I watched it, I watched it in the same format that Ruth did. And I was probably even more amazed than she was because I had just I'd seen scenes and things and I knew what to expect but it's it's not the same as actually seeing it with your own eyes and I was just my it's jaw dropping it's just such, it a, is. such a gorgeous film mm -hmm. so that is Walt Disney's 16th animated feature Sleeping Beauty which is celebrating its diamond anniversary this January So, Ruthie, where can everybody find Jiminy Crickets on the web? You can find all of our past shows, including audio versions of Dateline Jiminy Crickets, on our website, jcricketpodcast.blogspot.com. You can also listen to us on iTunes under the name Jiminy Crickets. That's with an exclamation point, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. On our YouTube channel, we share updates to the Disney Chris website, including the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour, as well as past episodes of the Jiminy Crickets podcast and Dateline Jiminy Crickets. You can find our channel if you search for DisneyChris.com. And remember, .com is spelled out D-O-T-C-O-M. 
You can also join in the conversation over on our Facebook page, Jiminy Crickets Podcast, where you can not only interact with Chris and me and all the fellow cricketeers, but you can also stay up to date on all the latest details of our many worldwide web endeavors. If you would like to contact the show with any comments or questions, our email address is disneychrisdotcom at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at DisneyChris73 and on Facebook. And you can also find Ruthie on Facebook. And she's under the name Ruthie Brown. And I'm under the name Chris Linden. And that's L-Y-N-D-O-N as in Lyndon Johnson. My website is DisneyChris.com, which is home to the Disney Song of the Day and the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour, where you'll find over 1,600 audio tracks from the happiest place on Earth. We'd like to give special thanks to those who help spread our magic with their generous support. And you can help support our show and the Disney Chris website by becoming a Patreon subscriber. And by joining our illustrious roster of supporters, you will not only receive exclusive audio content every month, but your name will be featured on screen during the closing credits of our Dateline Jiminy Crickets YouTube news program. And alternately, you can make a one-time only donation or recurring donation via PayPal. Uh, you'll find a link to all these donation options on my website, and the URL is disneychris.com donate.html. So do you have any final words for tonight, Ruthie? I do. To quote Walt Disney, laughter is timeless, imagination has no age, dreams are forever. And always let your conscience be your guide. When your heart is in your dream.